Hi folks, uh, this is Christian Haynes from Gamers with Glasses, and I'm happy to be joined by two of our contributing editors for Gamers with Glasses, uh, Ed Selst and Tron Gonzalez. Hello everyone. And Claire Brownstone. Hi everyone, nice to be here. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, Ed Sell, I know you've been on the GWG show once before, and Claire, this is your first time on the podcast stream, so thanks for making it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> We've got a special podcast today, which is we're doing a spoiler cast of Near Automata, which I hope I am pronouncing correctly. I've heard it pronounced many ways, but that's what I'm going to go with, I think, uh, until I mispronounce it later on down the road. Uh, and this is, just to warn everybody, a spoiler-filled podcast. We assume that you've played it, or that if you haven't played it, all 26 endings, well, and the five main ones, uh, then you are fine with it being spoiled because we're just going to jump in and talk about all kinds of good stuff. Uh, but I thought we might start off with what people's experience with Yokotaro games are before, maybe Platinum games or games like this. Have you played Nier? Have you played Drakengard? So I don't know, Edsel, you want to start us off? Um, sure. So besides, um, I'm and and I think I'll pronounce the name as well during this podcast um, because in my mind Autonoma makes sense for some reason but I played the original Nier game too and and I played games with similar mechanics to it as well but so far my experience has been really good about it like I love the game mechanics I love the ability to explore the world well the post-apocalyptic world that is shown in the game um, changing weapons and basically how they change your fighting style completely from your character. Um, I thought that was really fun and interesting, especially how you will have to adapt with certain bosses and enemies that you face throughout the game. Yeah. And what about you, Claire? Um, so um, I did end up uh, watching the original Nier playthrough before I played Nier Automata. Um, I had never actually heard of the series before Nier Automata was released um, because it kind of, I mean, it really did bring the series into the, to the spotlight, I feel like, with the release of Nier Automata. Um, but I was, I, for some reason, kind of bent on <clears throat> doing it in what I thought was the correct sequence, <laughs> which was the original Nier and then Nier Automata. Um, and, but uh, I didn't really have a good way of playing the original Nier um, at the time. So I just ended up watching a playthrough of the Gestalt version, which is the, the original Western release of Nier. <laughs> um, then I did uh, play Nier Automata a few years after that, actually. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, that was pretty much, this is pretty much my only actual experience with any games by Yoko Taro. I haven't really had any experience with Drakengard. I do know that Nier is a spinoff from Drakengard. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't really know a whole lot about the Drakengard series as a whole. So. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Claire, in, in that I uh, I hadn't played Nier before, uh, but I had watched some of the cutscenes. I am now playing Nier Replicant 1.22 something 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 dot dot dot, uh, very Yoko Taro titling to do. It's actually really indicative of this remake that's not a remake, but also not a remaster, somewhere in between the two. Uh, but I, I mean, I think you're right that Nier Automata really didn't have or really was the game that kind of brought the entire series to light in the way it had it before. And that's actually just borne out in sales. Nier 
uh, really didn't sell well at all. And the idea of making a sequel really wasn't even on the board for quite a while. Uh, it took a lot of convincing, I think, for that to happen. And Automata did quite well uh, selling over 5.5 million copies, actually, within its first few years. And I would be unsurprised if we saw some kind of additional spinoff or sequel. In addition to, actually, there's been a mobile game that's come out recently uh, that I'm not sure if is in English yet, but I know is out in Japanese. Uh, that's directly related to Automata. Yeah, I'm um, not sure if it's out yet um, in English. I don't I don't think it is, but... Um... Yeah, it's it's kind of actually impressive that this game got made at all, in my opinion, just like looking at the history of the series and like how how much of a niche the original like Drakengard and original Nier were like they again, it was just kind of amazing that they were like, you know what, let's just give him more money and like just see what he can actually do, um, you know, with all the resources Um you know, to kind of, and they really did just kind of let him make the game that he wanted to make. Um, and I, I just feel like since the video game industry in general is, you know, under the pressure of sales so, so much is just impressive that this was greenlit at all. Um, it paid off for them for sure. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I think this is also an instance where, from what I understand, the biggest thing in the remaster that they did of Replicant is introduce the combat from Automata into it, or at least a more streamlined, more fluid combat. And I do have to wonder if part of what didn't help with the sales is not just Yoko Taro being attached to it as a creative director, but also that they had brought in a combat director from Platinum Games. And they said, this pedigree is behind that. And you had people that are waiting for another Bayonetta game, that are waiting for another hack and slash with that kind of finesse that platinum games bring to it which i have to admit that is my that was my attraction to it is i love that kind of hack and slash game i've loved it since they first started coming out essentially and uh so for me i didn't know what i was getting into when i picked it up to be quite honest i was like oh the game has this combat and then i was like what is going on why is there a character named jean-paul sartre uh uh I, I love that aspect of it, but it was definitely a kind of eye-opening thing. And then, you know, it resulted in a Google deep dive uh, to try to figure things out that I still feel like I'm figuring out. Um, Probably got blindsided by all the emotions. <laughs> yeah, no, and that too. I was like, you know, especially as you get towards some of those latter endings, uh, yeah. you know, when A2 really becomes a character, for example, uh, when 9S goes mad, uh, and you know we'll be talking about that, but I think it's it's really a game that plays its cards close to its chest in terms of what it is until you really dig into it. So I think, yeah, yeah. Um, no, and think and thinking too of Bayonetta, for example, and thinking um, my game my gameplay for both the first and the second version. Um, one thing I do found interesting as well with these types of games is, um, is basically like, well, I don't know if I would call it my willingness to try to master the, the hardest level of the game and, well, or at least surviving like maybe the first five minutes without the enemies like quickly killing me or mastering the dodge mechanism. <laughs> like I've seen these gameplay videos and I'm like, wow, how do they master the dodge mechanism? Because like timing's really everything in that aspect. I'm like, I haven't mastered that skill yet, but I need to if I'm gonna pass Bayonetta or any of the near games in that hardest level. 
Yeah. And it's rough. Like I, I tried uh, playing near and hard. I could, I can't make it past the prologue. Like it's, it's really difficult. (laughs) So yeah, it's, this game has a huge, huge difficulty jump between normal and hard. Um, (laughs) Like they should have made it a one in between. um, Because yeah, it's, it's just almost impossible. Like I, I have yet to successfully do that. (laughs) (laughs) They needed something like the recent Wolfenstein games or something where there's like six or seven different tiers of difficulty with various levels of insulting names, depending on how low you go. Um, (laughs) Yep. You know, without, without trying to be like controversial or anything, I'm not sure that they implemented the higher difficulty very well either in a very interesting way, because from what I can tell, it mostly seems to have to do with damage multipliers and yep. mm-hmm. basically turning enemies into bullet sponges. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Fine. And you die in like two hits. It's yeah. not fun. <laughs> it's just kind of like, okay, there are better ways, I mean, to implement those kinds of difficulty levels. And, and I think it's one of those moments where I do have to wonder to what degree that kind of implementation isn't simply an effect of budget. Because I will say, I don't think this was a game that had a high budget, right? There's a lot of reused assets. This is actually, you know, and even when it came out, it's not the best looking game in certain respects. Right. Yeah. I love the aesthetic, but it's not, you know, it's not a highly rendered, you're not looking at a Last of Us or a Last of Us Part Mm 2 in terms of when it came out and a level of graphical fidelity or something. This isn't the most beautiful game in the world or it's beauty doesn't have to deal with its resolution. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's all about the the general aesthetic, but not the actual pixels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay. So maybe we can do the dangerous thing, which is to try to give a broad sense of the story. We are not, I promised my co-host that we are not going to try to go beat through a beat. Uh, in the story. Otherwise, we would be here till four in the morning and nobody wants that. There are other things to talk <laughs> about, but maybe we can hit a, on a few of the central beats, which is, I think we start off, we're androids. We're androids, presumably fighting for the human species to reclaim the planet Earth from aliens, but not even from aliens, but from machines that the aliens have created. So you're androids fighting against machines that are relatively anthropomorphic, but not as anthropomorphic as androids. Is that right? Yeah, that basically sums it up. Yeah. And humans are not actually involved in this ent- like game at all. Like they're on the moon kind of, they're there, but not really there. <laughs> so they're very much a take a backseat. Um, it's all, all machines or androids pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we warned you about spoilers, but... First, the humans are in the backseat, and then you realize the backseat's empty, right? <laughs> you turn around and your children are lo- no longer in the car, um, to use a really horrible extended metaphor, right? You realize that humans, in fact, have been extinct. Aliens have been extinct, which you learn in the first playthrough. I believe you yep. learned humans were extinct in the second playthrough, playthrough B. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you've been fighting arguably for, arguably for no reason, pointlessly, this entire time. Yep. Yeah. Bummer. Bummer. <laughs> right? So what else did what else did 
And so, Claire, what else did you take to be the like main story beats or the main narrative trajectories in this that are worth just highlighting? Wow. Well, thinking back at this, um, and also playing it back and see some gameplay videos, I was really interested in the fact of, well, I think it was more 2Bs and 9S self-awareness more than anything, especially 2B from the start where she starts asking herself questions like, you know, what is this God that we're fighting for? Or what are we, why are we in this war in the first place? And I thought that was really interesting thinking that they're androids, so they must be pre-programmed to obey certain commands and do certain functions, right? Um, so it just amazes me how very strong to be at the start, had this self-awareness of herself. And even though she was conducting all her missions and basically playing the game, you can see this kind of pushback that um, not only in the way she's think, not only the way she's questioning or thinking about it, but in certain scenes, like after the prologue, when she says thanks to Nines about saving her memory, and I was like, oh, well, sorry, I don't remember that. I just did what I'm programmed to do. And then she clutches her fist very angrily. And I'm always amazed in that kind of sensation that she's projecting and how we as gamers are interpreting that um, throughout the game and how the game, well, and how the narrative of the story is evolving, our understanding of you know, what's happening here and really deconstructing the real reasons, like why is this war happening in the first place? I think yeah. that's a great point <clears throat> because I it were actually, as you play it through, if I, if I interpreted it correctly, you actually re end up sort of reinterpreting 2B's emotions and actually realizing that in fact, she knew more than she let you, the player, know. Right, she actually has this consciousness that's passing from body to body, mm -hmm. where she knows, in fact, not only that she's being reincarnated in these different things, but also what's happening to 9S, which is that as a scanner droid, he's too curious and keeps finding out what's actually going on, namely that they're fighting for no reason, that this whole war between the machines and androids is really just an excuse to keep having the androids reproduce themselves in the name of a humanity that no longer exists or the human yeah. species that's extinct. Yeah, and adding to that, another thing that I found really interesting, especially in the beginning, is that um, both the, both when Tubi and Nines talk to the commander, for example, or when they go back to Earth, um, there's always this talk that, you know, there are limited resources, um, you need to be careful, like not to self-destruct all the time in missions or not to break any of the airships, which I find really interesting because it's like, wow. So like they also have to wash out like the way they do things because they can't afford to like mass produce all these androids and just attack all the robots <laughs> and just end this war. So there's this caution aspect of it, too. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think one of the most beautiful parts about the this game is each playthrough it's like you're getting like different sides of um you know not only the android side of things but also the machine side of things like particularly when you play through as 9s because as a scanner he's picking up a lot more data um than even 2b would would pick up on yes she she does know a lot um because you know again that's turns out to be you know her her job is to kind of follow 9s and again spoilers uh you know kind of 
you know, delete him when he finds out too much. Um, but, um, when you find out like more about the machines, it's like the first playthrough, like when you are playing as 2B, um, they have names, but they're in an unintelligible like language, like you can't read them. But then like, as you play through as 9S, every single machine has a name, every single one. Um, like the, especially like the main bosses, it's like Engels, um, and uh, I forget the singer's name at the moment. Simone, I think. Simone, yeah. yeah. Simone um, de Beauvoir. So it's another yeah. philosopher name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he also kind of picks up these. I, I the the one part that always confused me about the 9S playthrough is like those flashes of like those like kind of storyboard cutouts, and it sounds like it's narrated by him, but they're kind of like not they're not really related to what's going on with you know the story at that moment like they may be tangentially related but I was always kind of curious about whether 9s himself is actually narrating that or is that like someone else that sounds like 9s and I'm not really sure um if anyone really knows but um but yeah I think that's why these multiple playthroughs like never really felt I don't know, like repetitive was because you were getting more information, um, each time. So, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right in terms of part of what's interesting here. I mean, you, when you first hear about this game, one of the first things you hear about it is you have to play through it multiple times to get the true ending, which is, you know, the most daunting thing you can tell pretty much anybody uh unless unless you're really into jrpgs going back to like the 90s when a lot of games were doing that and games still do that but and even if you are it's still like okay how many times do i have to play through this mm-hmm. uh but then you actually do it and you're like okay this you know the second playthrough is quite different it's faster as well yeah. and then as you keep going it's much different you're not playing the same game and even when you are intersecting with the same events it's a different angle on them that's really interesting you have a different knowledge of that right yeah and even like the 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 break point like between like the ending b and then going on it's like they made it so obvious that like this is actually like a almost a different game they even gave you like at the end of ending b like a preview of like the next game and then like a whole nother like intro sequence like oh this is actually near automata so it almost makes it seem like you know, the, the first two endings that you got are actually just like, oh, this is just the prologue, guys. Um, this is the actual meat of the game here. <laughs> you also, I mean, and then it's, it's so true. In a certain sense, you actually don't know what's going on until you get, oh, get to yeah. that third playthrough. And then it's like, okay, now it's starting to click. Now things are starting to make sense. And even then, there's such a weird, like, intertextual set of references to other games like Drakengard 3 and Near Gestalt or Replicant that you're still getting like two thirds of the story at that point. Uh, and we won't get into those too much except where absolutely necessary. But, you know, w- once you get to that third playthrough, which is, you know, basically starts off in crisis mode, right? Things are blowing up. Uh, in that first part of the third playthrough, you start encountering androids who become infected by a logic virus. This seems to be a callback as well to the fact that in Drakengard 3, there's the introduction of a viral infection in modern day Tokyo that then becomes the premise for what's happening in Nier. 
And so seemingly this is supposed to echo that, even if it's not the exact same thing, although there's suggestions that there's a relationship between these things in a computer database that you can access in the third or fourth playthrough within the resistance camp, uh, where you learn some of the story of Anemone and others. Uh, but, you know, they get infected Basically, the entire Yora Android system is falling apart to the point where it seems like 2B and then 9S will be the only ones that are still functional, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, and then A2, right, which we'll have to talk about A2. And that's that's what's really interesting to me, too, is the introduction of A2, uh, who seems to me, just from playing near Replicant, the remake right now to really harken back to the character Kene uh, mm. in terms of affect or emotion or the way she speaks. Uh, she doesn't have quite as dirty of a mouth, but it's, you know, it's quite, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, there's something there. Uh, but it, she's really, you know, she's this badass android that is kind of on the outs of the Yora system that is basically a deserter. Uh, what do folks think of A2? I mean, she's very, like, I agree in the sense that um, she has, like, a very interesting character. But for some reason, I didn't connect with her as much as I connected with 2B. Um, and I don't know if that's just because of um, kind of the way, like, she was introduced as, like, I don't know, as a deserter. Um, and I think it just kind of, like, maybe tainted my perception of her um, in general. Um but I mean, she's, she's definitely a really interesting character. And the fact that she was, she's the one that eventually, I mean, finishes the whole thing. Um, you know, I think that's pretty, pretty powerful. Um, and when she meets to be at the end of her life, um, which again, this is kind of like goes into like one of my favorite portions of the game is actually when to be dies at the hands of a two, um, and to be says, take care of 9S, which I think is just a very interesting um, command, I guess, or request, um, because it could you could interpret it a couple of different ways. Um, keeping in mind 2B's ultimate purpose is to kill 9S. Um, over, <laughs> and over, and over. <laughs> over and over and over. Over and over and over again. Um, like, is she actually asking? A2 to continue her mission or is she actually asking her to you know take care of 9S as in like oh actually I I I mean I, I think it's kind of obvious that 2B and 9S do care for each other um but it's like what part like how much can they overtake their you know their own programming essentially um and I don't know, you know, at the end when she's, you know, asking A2 to kill her, I, I don't know which part is like kind of overruling in 2B's mind at the moment. Um, but yeah, and then, so yeah, it, and then of course, the reason why that scene is my favorite is actually because of 9S's reaction. And the, the voice actor for 9S, I think, deserves like some sort of medal for voice acting because, you know, the first portion of the game where he's just this like cute little cinnamon bun character and is just like goofy and like, you know, more emotional than, uh, than to be, um, even kind of comes across. And then, you know, at that point, it's like kind of his, his breaking point. And like that scream that he, 
like makes at that point it like it is the most emotion I have ever like felt from a scream ever um it's just it's so powerful and it's a very emotional moment for for him and it's just like it comes across in just that one scream (laughs) so um yeah I I think I definitely felt more attached to 2B than A2 I think just maybe because of it was the first character you played as um not really sure but yeah I always felt more attached to 2B than A2 (laughs) yeah it's funny I think one of the most interesting things in the game that you just made me think of is you know, so much of the last portions of this game are a result of 9S arguably misinterpreting what's happening in that scene, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, the hint that before it drives him mad. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, if, there's a lot of references to existentialism in this game, and we don't need to necessarily go into that very deep. But one of the central problems of existentialism is the problem of other people or that other people represent this notion that at a certain point, other people are unknowable and you have to make these assumptions about them. But with these androids, you presumably actually could have this kind of perfect knowledge. And you even see hints of that, for example, when 9S inhabits the machine network uh, towards the end of the first playthrough, I want to say. And there are these moments where you see them overcoming that, you know, impasses, that gap, that void. And, uh, but you don't get that. Instead, you get this problem of miscommunication and of just like missed connections there. Uh, and A2, futile, you know, in a futile effort trying to convince him that she did the right thing and that she did what needed to be done. Uh, and that's just such a tragic moment. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I'm just thinking of A2's character. And it always fascinates me because it's almost like it's almost like A two serves as that kind of I, I don't I don't exactly know how to phrase this, but thinking of two Bs, um, still stuck in that initial programming that she has to kill nine S every time because that's like the, the main reason why she was built, but then transferring her data in that sword and like making the choice for um, A2 to kill her, it's like a sense of liberation too, in that sense, kind of like, well, no matter, I can't get out because I'm still very much part of this network. And with that, I'm still kind of like encompassed with my programming. Um, so I see easy to, so I see A2 as a way that to, comp- to basically continue, um, I guess carrying, um, to be's will or torch or whatever that metaphorically makes sense <laughs> in that way. Because I'm also thinking too of at least A2's interaction with Pascal and the robots in the factory. And specifically that choice the player has either to kill Pascal or just not. And it made me think too, like, well, would that be a hundred percent um like A2's decision or is 2B still influencing in that decision-making too as we progress through the game as A2? Because I don't know, just the whole aspect of like, we can use 2B in certain parts of the game, but within the other scenes as 9S, we do see that um, A2 models, uh, sorry, um, B2 models, 
2B models can still be very much replicated in this case. And so there's no reason why her memories can't be transferred to a new body in that sense. But it's like the whole aspect of, you know, now we're playing as this other character, but we're not entirely sure like how much of this character self is in the big decision-making throughout the narrative, because now they're going through very similar experiences. And since we get acquainted to like um, Pascal and the robot village, which all the characters got acquainted to, it's like how much it's like how much of the interactions are one character or the other in that aspect. Yeah, that's very true. Cause we don't have much experience with A2 before that. Yeah. So yeah, who who really knows how much of her personality at that point is her own? Yeah. Yeah, I think most of the backstory for A2, you can read in basically what our text adventure is on computers in the background of the game, you know? And uh, and I think, you know, I, I know there's some fiction that's been written to filling gaps in these games. I haven't personally read it. Like there's been some short stories and novellas and stuff, but I don't know it. Um, but so I think that might fill in some of it. But it, I do think that one of the things that happens, if I remember correctly, is that when the logic virus starts, it essentially corrupts the backup server so that when 2B dies at the hands of A2, the finality of that initially seems to be because she can't be backed up in the same way, if I'm understanding correctly. But I think then, so. I think you're right. Is that right? I, yeah, because I think that was after the virus had kind of already made its rounds and like all of the Yorha androids. So right. I think that was the part where, oh, this program is, is ending. So once 2B has gone, she's, she's going to be gone for good. Uh, I mean, except for the but memories it, that she transferred. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but then she's not. And, and the way yeah. she's not is it turns out that her sword is actually a flash drive, basically. Right. <laughs> her sword versus yep. a backup hard drive as one sword usually does uh and uh and so in fact by claiming her sword a2 ends up with her memories embedded in 2b's memories embedded in her own cybernetic brain uh and that is how we get to the final sort of segment of the narrative which are and i think this is just a brilliant move it turns out that the pods have an entire storyline. That in fact, this entire time, these little loading funky machines that were just, all you thought they were, were little things shooting bullets for you, actually gain sentience by the end of your third or fourth playthrough and decide to save you. Well, yep. one of them decides to save you and the other kind of goes along with it. One of them's a real, not a bully, but manages to kind of strong arm the other and be like, look, we should probably do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and in one of the endings, the final ending really involves you as the droid saving, in fact, uh, 9S and 2B. Is, yeah. Was that your interpretation of things as well? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Just one little pod going against its own programming again. <laughs> um, with with presumably the player's help. Um, that's it's a little it was a little bit fourth wall breaking in a sense because um i mean yeah the whole ending credit scene um it's not only you helping but also reaching out to all the other people who are playing this game yeah i i mean that's 
that part is just amazing. So, I mean, that final ending, you're essentially, you're in a shmup battle. So you're shooting the credits, which, I mean, there's a, some sort of wonderful masochism to that of having the players shoot uh, the developers' names. Uh, and it becomes impossibly difficult, but then you can engage in this question about whether or not existence has meaning. And if you push through for far enough, eventually you'll bring in other players' avatars essentially to aid you, which basically levels up your weapon, uh, and enables you to defeat the credit sequence, uh, and win the game, I suppose, uh, but you get these messages from other players and you're able to leave a message as well. I forget whether or not you can only leave a message if you let your game be deleted. I think that's the case. Uh, but right. basically yeah. you sacrifice your save file. Mm -hmm. Did everybody sacrifice their save file or was there a holdout here? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, the second time I played through it, I did sacrifice my save file. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm asking whether or not you're a good person, but. <laughs> but yes, yeah, I mean, it is, it does make, definitely raise an interesting question. It's like, why are we all so attached to our save files as gamers? Um, I mean, it's one thing if you you know, play 80 hours into a game um, and then like, you know, a catastrophe happens and, you know, you have to start all over again. But it's like, if you've beaten the game, I mean, do you really need those? <laughs> Where it's like Pokemon and you're trying to hold on to your uh, various Pokemon from one generation to the next. Uh, I had a student talking about that in the class I taught this morning. How she's had mm -hmm. the same Charmander uh, since... I was going to say since the 90s, but I don't think she was born in the 90s. Uh, so since, let's say, the 2000s. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, it's one of the things I think this game does so well, and maybe we can use this as an opportunity to talk about the gameplay mechanics a little bit, uh, is it's also a commentary on games and gaming and gameplay and the kinds of things we're attached to, to the point where even the UI or the user interface becomes elements of the game to the point where if you want to actually make your character stronger, you can strip out parts of your UI, like your maps. You can, you can strip out your mini map. You can strip out other things in order to put in more chips that add to your skill set or that make your weapons or your defense stronger. Yeah. What do folks think of that? Um, I just think it's fascinating thinking about it because it also challenges what if we played similar games with similar mechanics and kind of like that common genre conventions of each game. Like, I think what I find it fascinating is the choice as players that we actually get to play with all that um, just to make our characters stronger. Um, and not highly depend on, well, we talked about save files, for example, but also the mini-map. Um, if you're not really familiar with the terrain, you need a mini-map to like know where to go from. Um, and gosh, I, and also the kind of different mechanics and in-game weapons that the game offers in terms of, you know, um, what I prefer to attack enemies head on and do close combat, but I also have the option of long range. Um, and just um, basically care more about my safety or can I just, or at least in the, in the beginning games where you can just tell um, 9S for example, like 
and change his combat mode, whether he wants to attack um, aggressively or passively or long range or short range. And it's funny because in lots of the recent gameplay videos I've seen, lots of players choose aggressively just to have 9S just do all the work while they <laughs> concentrate on other stuff using 2V, which I find which I'm very comedic in that sense because it's like, wow, that's very true because like, I could have just told 9S to do all the, all the work for me and just couch potato my way through this game and enjoy the storyline in that sense. But that's not what a scanner android should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a combat model, yeah, but actually, <laughs> but actually, right? <laughs> yeah. In fact, what you realize in that second playthrough is that the hacking mini game results oh in a completely—you just keep blowing everybody up. It's wonderful. No, there's there's so many side quests that are really difficult as to be, and it's like when you're playing through the game initially, it's like, I mean, you have no idea like what's, what's happening, what's going to happen next. And so you try and do like, I mean, I just remember this one particular side quest that was like the parade, like the, the pacifist robot parade. It is mm -hmm. almost impossible to do that as to be, unless you were like maybe a really high level and could like defeat most of the robots in one, one hit. But it's right. like, it's a cakewalk as 9S because you just chain hack everyone and they just all blow up. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. There's um, a cave that cuts underneath uh, that canyon leading up to the commercial area, to mm -hmm. the former mall, and that you can enter either from a waterfall in the forest area or just by dropping down. And there's a bunch of incredible, incredibly difficult, like level 40 or 50 robots that don't you know, that aren't level scaled to you, even in your first playthrough. And I just remember my first time playing this, I just kept going back and back trying to like beat these things, you know, things, which actually I think technically is impossible because the way the algorithm works, it becomes impossible to beat characters that are at a certain number of levels over you. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you go as, you know, 9S leveled up and you hack them and it's like, oh, this is what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. And levels in that sense are really funny too, especially thinking back of the prologue where you fight these huge robots, for example. And even though you're the same level as them, they can still kill you in little hits and you're done for. <laughs> and I'm like, yep. but we're the same level. What is this? <laughs> yeah. Always be dodging. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, like, I mean, I just, my hand, my finger almost never left the right trigger in terms of just like dodge, 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 dodge. A little cheap, but it also worked. Well, the other thing, I mean, we kind of already talked about like the hard difficulty of this game, but the other thing that you can do, um, this game can almost play itself um, if you equip all the auto chips, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. It's like, I mean, if you really just wanted to like go through it and like just, you know, not worry about anything, uh, you could just let the game play itself and just, you know, enjoy this, the story. Um, so I, I think it's kind of cool that. Um, I mean, that's not an option in any game that I can think of is really just like yeah. <laughs> equipping all the auto dodge, auto fire, <laughs> like auto aim, just like here. <laughs> um, it makes so me think cool. a little bit of Celeste and like some of the options that Celeste gives you to modify the difficulty on a really granular level. Mm -hmm. But it's wonderful because, yeah, I mean, you can play this game without being very good at combat. I think if you insert those, this is essentially a three dimensional visual novel. And that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, can't think of another game that like really does it to that extent. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. Excellent. Excellent. Did people like the shmup parts, the like space combat uh, parts? <laughs> I was like, no. 
really terrible at them. It's <laughs> pretty much why I didn't like them. It took me a while to figure out the hacking thing also. It took me a while to figure out that you could actually aim while hacking. Um, like I thought you were like fixed and just could like strafe and fire. And I was like, this is so hard. And then I was like, oh no, you can aim. <laughs> so but once I figured that out, it wasn't so bad. But yeah, it, it definitely is not my favorite genre game. And like particularly with um, his obsession with like the the floating energy balls, which also happened in the original Nier. Um, I just think that's kind of, I don't know, weird. Um, and I'm not sure why he includes those in like the, the more three-dimensional combat. Oh, and the times where he fixes the camera angle also. While cool, <laughs> um, definitely makes the three-dimensional combat really frustrating. I mean, you know, we're always talking about like camera angles and games and how it can either be your friend or your enemy, like, uh, like especially in games like Dark Souls or Bloodborne, like, my God, the camera could definitely be your enemy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did find in some places where he'd fix the camera angle um, was just very frustrating. Um, <laughs> it's just, there's just so much going on. And it's like, I felt like I, I wanted that freedom of camera movement to figure out what was happening, but you know, cinematic wise, it was cool looking, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. That, the floating energy balls are interesting because it's basically taking like the, I think like you were saying, Claire, the shmup elements and putting them in the hack and slash combat arena, which sort of works and sort of doesn't actually, there's a game coming out later this week. That's going to be doing something very similar uh, from Housemark studios, Returnal, which is a studio that often makes shmups. So like uh Rezo gun, Super Stardust, uh, Next Machina, which it's a very old genre of games that arguably is one of the first genre of games, right? Going If you go back to Asteroids, mm -hmm. for example. So there, I think there's a way in which that's, one of the ways that I think about this game is that it's an archive of video game history in a way that mm -hmm. like part of what, and, and, I, and, I, and I think part of the reason I think of this is because that libraries are very important in Yoko Taro's games. So Nier has a library that's one of the central hubs in the game. Uh, one of the final places that you are in this game is in fact the library. Mm -hmm. uh, if you remember inside the tower. And I, I think the reason for that is that's a recreation of the library from Nier. Yes, you're right. Because, yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, because like Devola and Popolo are like recreations of characters that are in Nier. There are other versions of those characters uh, that are kind of the quest givers in Nier in a lot of ways. Uh, so there's like a citational thing happening. There's like, I, we're going to speak to video game history, but if you don't like those kinds of games, I know a lot of people that gave up on this game without even making it to the first save point or that played this game a few times before they finally got to that save point. Uh, because that opening sequence can be kind of hard. I mean, sure. yeah, I kind of blow through it at this point, but it's only because I've played this game several times and I'm like, okay, let's do this and this and dodge and da da da. But it's hard when you first start out. Yeah. yeah and the camera. Especially since you can't save at all during that opening portion mm -hmm. and you can't modify. It's it's basically like it's I don't think it's like actually that more difficult than most of the other games. It's just like they've taken away all the like modifications that you can do later on that make it easier. <laughs> it's funny because this is a game that can become incredibly easy, but there are moments where they take away the things that make this game easy or not even that make it easy, but make it 
bearable sometimes. So that moment where, you know, your abilities to even jump are stripped away. Uh, I got stuck down in the pit in the city center would I during one of those moments and had to try to climb my way back up and finally just killed myself and did it over and lost like 30 minutes of progress. But I, and I was like, okay, don't get stuck, stuck down in the pit again. And that's my one goal here because you can't jump, you can't run, you know, you're just like carrying your body as it's being contaminated by a logic virus. I died more times in that section of the game than any other section. Like no joke. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard when like you can't do anything. Like it was, it's actually really frustrating. Um, I I was starting to get pretty frustrated with the game in general because it it really, I mean, it's like okay, you lose like your ability for close range combat, then far range combat, then it's like all of your um like visual sensors uh, are gone, can't hear anything, and eventually you just can't move like you all you can do is just hobble along and hope you don't die (laughs) so yep yeah which is why i like i remember that scene um it still haunts me kind of when i think about it but it's funny because i'm like wow whatever happened to go couch potato settings like you know what happened to just enjoy the environment the scenery the storyline and you know just passing through (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah no, i entirely agree and, and it is i mean things like that and also the camera the camera is just one of those things where sometimes it just when it's changing perspectives it is just hard to play uh i still think it's worthwhile because it really does add these fresh perspectives at various moments but i do think in terms of what's happening there right is your android body is turning against you it's being infected and turning against you uh, almost like a kind of autoimmune reaction or something. And at first, it's very frustrating. But when I think about the overall message or interpretation of the game, it sort of makes sense to me. Because, you know, one of the things that we should talk about is this is also a game about war and maybe the pointlessness of war, the endlessness of war, and the way the desire for vengeance doesn't really have a resolution to it, doesn't wrap up neatly or tidily or productively and so i think it makes a lot of sense when your own body which is a war machine essentially (laughs) speaking of bodies uh there's a puppy in the background for audio listeners and it's very cute and popped up out of nowhere uh but you know your body as a war machine turning against you makes a lot of sense in a game that essentially is trying to through rather complicated means get you to call into question our desire for combat in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I put um, a quote from Yoko Taro um, in here that I kind of wanted to bring up because I think it kind of sums up his, uh, the entire point of both near and near automata, actually. Um, he said this in an interview, I don't have the actual link for it, but he says, you don't have to be insane to kill someone. You just have to think you're right. Um, and you can really see how this quote is, it really describes the entire game. Um, because, you know, you start this game and you're like, oh, we're, you know, fighting the machines. Um, you know, they're all evil. Like, uh, you know, we have to defeat them all to save humanity. Like it seems very cut and dry, like standard video game stuff. But then, um, again, as the story unfolds, 
you realize that like, maybe you're the bad person. Like maybe you're just slaughtering innocent machines that are just trying to figure out their own life here in this, (laughs) on this planet, um, you know, make their own little kingdoms and families. Um, and I, I just think that, I don't know, it's, it's a very interesting quote, um, from, I think a very, very intelligent game designer. (laughs) So yeah and especially and this maybe this makes me think too on 2b9s mission in the desert when they go explore that um that abandoned civilization um and basically 9s just trying to convince 2b that you know they're just robots they don't have emotions they're just mimicking human speech they can't do that they're the enemy but then it's interesting how all even though they're trying to believe that what they're doing is right it's interesting how the robots themselves like prove otherwise that they're more than just machines um especially with the birth scene where that happened during that time and before that how the robots basically mimics like human sexuality human interactions before that happened and i was like wow this is very smart and this is a really good way to show what's happened, you know, kind of like the meaningless of war, but also how it's not that simple and categorizing like, you know, just androids and robots fighting for a cause. It's more than that. And I think it's very, I don't know. I just like the way how the game kind of like explores and pushes those limits beyond that. That's a great point, Edsel. I think, you know, where you first probably start realizing the game is as complicated as it is, is exactly that desert housing sequence uh, in which you see the aliens machines performing these human actions, uh, in particular, rocking a baby, mimicking uh, sex and so on. And part of what's happening there is it raises the question, okay, if we're the Yorha androids and our goal is to protect, save, rescue, whatever, humanity, and these machines are exhibiting humanity, then why are we destroying them? What's the goal there, right? If the premise here is that they're supposed to be emotionless, thoughtless beings, and obviously as the game progresses and you meet Pascal, named after a famous French philosopher, uh, probably most known, at this point for coming up with theories of probability uh, very early on. You meet Pascal and you meet an entire village that's not only filled with people, with robots that have these kind of intense pathos who have lost their sisters, uh, who are contemplating the meaning of life, a young kid who's locked himself uh, in his parents' house because he's discovered fear. I mean, you're also seeing them experiment with human social systems. There's a great point where there's one of them trying to figure out whether or not money is useful or is an evil, Uh, you know, sort of flirting with socialism or communism. And so it kind of breaks down that friend, foe or friend and enemy divide. And then everything else just kind of follows from there, Uh, especially when you realize the humans and the aliens are both extinct. Um, Yeah. And then that brings us to the point of what are we doing playing a game where combat 
is one of the main draws. And yet the lesson is that combat never ends well. And in fact, for the most part, until you get to ending E and in some degrees ending C, you don't get very happy endings. You don't get endings that resolve things. You get endings that just double down on the absurdity, the meaninglessness, and the violence of existence. You know, of living, of just being a being. Uh, you know, especially I mean the the nine S ending where you fight. You know, to a a two, excuse me, as nine S, and ends with both of you dying is just tragic. It's heartrending. You know, who did folks make of that? I I think it kind of, I mean, I, I'm not sure like where the game developer stands on this, um, but we obviously see like these kind of violent video games as a form of entertainment. And they even like, I think, I can't remember who, who specifically said this in the game, but they were talking about Westerns, like the, the movie genre of Westerns and how, um, you know, humans watch those as entertainment because, uh, you know, and they kind of, you know, the gunslingers and stuff, they found that, you know, entertaining. And then one of the androids, again, I can't remember which one said like humans used warfare as entertainment. Um, and like, you know, th they are kind of critiquing like us in terms of like, you know, our obsession with these kind of violent, <laughs> um, either movies or video games, what have you. Um, so I don't know why I guess um, Yoko Taro is like still, you know, using violence in his video games as a critique of violence, but I mean, he definitely is though. Um, it, it's without a doubt. And like, I mean, the gameplay is, is great. It's fun. It's a blast. So, I mean, it, I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of glad he did it that way um, instead of doing like, I guess the only other alternative really is just like a strictly visual novel, just like removing the player as a whole from participating in violence. Um, but I think doing it this way, it actually makes you participate in those acts of violence and then think about like, oh, what have you done? Like as the player, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, um, so I think in a way, using the violence to make you think about your actions is very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it is worth noting that two of the endings at least do suggest kind of nonviolent sort of exit routes from this loop of endless combat for the Yoha androids. One of them involves what is essentially an arc. So these towers that we thought were weapons have essentially been reprogrammed to be an arc that then sends Adam and Eve, who are presumably sort of avatars for the alien machine species or race or whatever it is as a whole, excuse me, off the search for other planets in which they can inhabit. And then the other ending is the ending that the pods give to minus and to be and maybe A2, which allows them to start anew, but this time no longer presumably ruled over by the mission to safeguard humanity, just to live their own 
autonomous lives. And so it's interesting that you could imagine a different version of this and without going into spoiler details, I would say that this is analogous to what happens in Last of Us Part Two, uh, where at the end of it, you're left with, okay, all of my actions were pointless. I've engaged in this sort of playthrough that has taught me to critique the things that I've just done, but that's it. Whereas this actually does give you something else. It does send you into this possibility for something else of a better existence, I guess. Yeah, like the one hopeful ending in the sea of tragedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a game that's mostly sad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's actually kind of interesting because even the the arc ending, um, when you're playing as 9S, you can actually choose to put yourself in the arc as well um, as 9S, um, which I think is kind of interesting. And I, I kind of wonder if almost that's another, I mean, good ending in in the sense that, I mean... <laughs> you know, the, the battle is over, the war is over. I mean, there's no, no, your high androids left. Um, presumably the remaining resistance members and machines will figure out how to coexist. Cause it seems that that was the direction that, you know, they were going towards on their own. Um, and then, you know, just the consciousness of Adam, even nine S just kind of float around in space and maybe find a new planet. Maybe don't, who knows? Doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe uh, we could talk about a few favorite moments or just favorite moments that we haven't already touched on uh, before wrapping it up and thinking about where Yokotaro might go next. Uh, there's been a, a little bit of news might be too strong a term about Yokotaro's current uh, project, uh, but we can come to that in a moment. But yeah, favorite moments for folks that we haven't touched on yet. I mean, I already mentioned the credits, which, to be honest, is one of my favorite moments, just because I think, you know, just that those instances in which other players are leaving messages for you is really, I found touching. Maybe I was just in the right mood for that, but I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the the credits is one of the most powerful scenes. I mean, on top of the, the fact that um, the song that plays um, at the end, um, which is the weight of the world, uh, is... Uh, it's so beautiful. Um, every version of it. <laughs> There's actually three different versions. There's an English, Japanese, and then I think they call it Nouveau French. Um, so it's not actually French, but French adjacent, I guess. <laughs> um, and I did want to touch on the music of this game in general as, um, I mean, one of my favorite parts of the game as a whole. Um, it's so beautiful. I mean, so well composed. Um, and the lyrics themselves, I think just how they came up with it is just so interesting as well. Um, so um, I can't remember the name of the vocalist. It's Emmy Evans is the name of the vocalist. And she actually developed the, most of the lyrics for these, uh, for the songs in the game. And how she did it is like each one is kind of based on a language that currently exists. And she's actually like kind of parsed sounds from the language, but they're not like actually meaningful, um, but just they sound so similar to, you know, our original language, um, but kind of an imagining of what they would sound like 
um, you know, thousands of years in the future, if, you know, kind of left to evolve, um, which I think is just, it's super cool. And you can even kind of hear like, you know, different songs kind of sound like different languages, like particularly like in the desert as almost like a more Arabic feel to it. Um, where some of the other songs have like a more romance language feel to it. And I know Kaine's song, which I think is, is actually part in it's played in near automata as well as the original one um the base language for that one is actually gaelic which is really cool um so and the fact that like you can hear like these echoes of you know our current languages um in these songs but with that without them actually having any meaning at all i think is just it's so cool um and it's one of the most inventive soundtracks um i've ever heard so uh, yeah, the music in general is one of my favorite parts of this game. Yeah, I love that too, that point, because I think it actually speaks to the game a little more generally as well, which is that a thing can have feeling, can mean something without meaning something. A thing doesn't even mean something in that direct sense of X means Y, but it can still carry meaning with it. And I think by the end of the game, that's kind of where you get, which is that these androids don't have a meaning to their life in the sense of a particular mission that they were destined to fulfill, but that actually becomes more meaningful than having a mission, which, because having a mission, having your entire life reduced to a function, destroy, destroy, destroy machines, uh, is actually the most meaningless existence you could possibly have. Whereas being stuck with your own free will, which, you know, as folks like Sartre pointed out, is a real kind of hell uh, because free will can suck. Because uh, it means you have to make choices, and choices aren't easy. Uh, but that—that's where meaning comes from, right? As a sort of mm -hmm. making those choices. The music in it—I find myself sometimes even just studying to the music uh, from near Automata, or reading to it. Uh, you know, doing other things with it in the background. Uh, it's a beautiful soundtrack uh, that I, I think it's available on Spotify and elsewhere that folks can listen to it. And uh, I'll admit that. There's a temptation sometimes to play video games, especially longer video games with a podcast on for me. And this is one of those games where I don't do that because I want to listen to the soundtrack and it carries me through even when I'm... There are moments of this game where I'll just flat out say I think are a little boring, uh, especially if you're trying to go through all the side quests. Side quests, yep. Yeah. Side quests are definitely where this game struggles um, in terms of variety. A lot of the side quests, like the story itself is cool, but ultimately they come down to mostly fetch quests yeah, yeah. and like the worst kind of fetch quest too yeah and yeah i definitely agree with the side quest too um like one of the ones i remember that i really liked the meaning behind it um i think it was one where one of the robots asked um one of the machines asked to be and i asked to get some medicine for a moose for example and kind of showed that kind and it was really interesting that fact how the machines like care for living organisms and kind of like the environment that the whole you know animals still being there for all the different kinds of environments that we see it in the game and another thing to talk about i really like how different each of the levels were in sense I guess, for example, like the Forest Kingdom versus the Carnival levels, for example, and how different these areas are and how cool it was to explore them and interact with them. Um, the one thing that I found really funny, but I also think it was like, why, why are they adding this here? It's like the fishing option that you have in this game. 
because I'm like, you're literally telling your drone to splash on some water in hopes that you find something, and then to be really cool, just sitting there and and, and I'm like, like digital stool, like what? yeah. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. It's like wow, this is so comedic. But I'm like, why add a fishing mechanism? <laughs> like, they're androids. You don't need water. <laughs> you don't like to eat fish. <laughs> I don't know. That's I mean, really I, hilarious. I think, and in fact, one of the 26 endings that you can get, because there are 26 oh lettered endings. One of them is from eating the fish because the jackass. <laughs> yeah, the mackerel that jackass is like, I really want you to eat this fish and see what happens. <laughs> Um, uh, and jackass, it turns out, is a jackass. <laughs> you die. Okay, she's actually a really interesting character, though. Um, it. It's actually, <laughs> I, I think, one of her side quests um, is actually the only real reference you get to the kind of circuitry in the androids. Um, she mentions that battle um, kind of releases like a chemical. I think is similar to the um, experience of love in humans they androids feel that emotion when they fight and kill. And so it kind of makes you realize that for androids, loving and killing are kind of interconnected, which you see this theme kind of propagated um, throughout the story as a whole. And Jack, if you do that one side quest with Jackass, which is actually a pretty difficult side quest, to be honest, um, because you have to like defeat a bunch of enemies in a certain amount of time. without getting hit at all it's very difficult um but that's like the only effort like the only mention that you get of this part of the story and i think it's just kind of a shame that he hid that in such a difficult side quest <laughs> um, i missed that yeah. yeah no and it's like that's the only like as far as i know anyway granted there's obviously things that i've missed but like that's the only mention that you get that in terms of the inner workings of the androids, like those two emotions are inextricably linked. It's like, you, yeah, it's like their, their desire to kill and their desire to love, which kind of explains, I, I think, a little bit of 9S's and 2B's feelings towards each other. That makes a lot of sense. It also, I don't want to say it explains it, something that we've not talked about, oh but also sort of makes sense with in terms of the ridiculous costumes uh in the game and the reason why despite loving this game i will never have a statue from the game in my house uh because my partner already gives me looks when i'm playing the game and i have to be like i swear this game's really interesting (laughs) um because yeah yoko taro loves to put characters in very skimpy outfits yeah yeah and it's it's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of interesting as well. Like, like his, his reasoning for it, like that he's stated in interviews, is just like, oh, I just like pretty girls. Um, which, I mean, I think he got a hand at him for just being straight out and honest about it because the vast majority of other video games, when you see like scantily clad women, like they try and like come up with some other weird explanation for it. And you're just like, yeah, we all know the real reason, guys. Like... <laughs> <laughs> the unfortunately named Quiet from Metal from the Metal Gear Solid series, who's almost yeah. naked because she po- supposedly needs, I think, to breathe through her skin or something. But she's also named Quiet, and it's just like, uh, um, yeah. so yeah, yeah, and 
I was I was remembering too another interesting side quest that caught my attention a little bit was the photograph side quest. Um, because literally the whole reason is that this one android from the resistance camp lost her memory and she needed you to revisit basically all the <laughs> levels to take a picture in each one for her to clean that again. And it was really interesting too because it does give the player that hint that wow, so literally everyone has been in the exact same environments before <laughs> at all this time. It's not like it's the first time you're visiting this, but I also like that kind of attachment to the, and I guess connection that when this case that the Andrew had in these spaces in order to regain that memory she have lost and kind of like an attachment to the earth as well through that wave of thinking interest of memories work or how a single object can help us remember certain events that are meaningful to our lives and development. Mm -hmm. no, I think that's absolutely true. And I have to say that, you know, I, I wrote an article for the website, uh, just a little thing about the environment and the game and the way in which I think actually what's weirdly utopian about this game is the extinction of the human species, which allows all of these things to grow back. And there's that moment as you're coming to the end of the factory where 2B notices the birds uh, and comments on them and 9S replies that the environment's changed since human, you know, since uh, people have been away on the moon, supposedly, at that point. Um, and I mean, you just notice that if you actually pay attention and think about it, the trees are as big as skyscrapers, right? There are these trees that wind around these vast concrete buildings within the game, which I think it's easy to sort of just rush over that and not think about it, but that's gigantic. That's bigger than redwoods. It's bigger than any tree that we have right now. And so you get this sense of, oh, this is a game that's taking place far in the future when, you know, what some environmentalists call rewilding has been allowed to happen, but not in a controlled way, in a way that has just kind of been wild in the best way. Uh, and that to me is just, you know, and that and the, the animal, the animal side mission with the moose um, uh, that is also, I think about that attachment to the environment and about the way we invest ourselves both in environments in a natural sense, but also like you were saying, Edsel, in environments as a place where we locate our memories, as a place where we attach our memories to them in a metaphorical and sometimes literal sense. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And yeah. I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry, but yeah, adding to that, I also think how how interesting the side, quest, the side quest in this game are because it actually allows us to get to know more otherwise these side characters that really don't mean anything to the story, especially the ones of lots of the resistance members that even though we don't know all their names or any other background stories, it is, I found it really nice how we, how, we perceive them as individuals based on their interest or basically that motivation to find out about the past world. Because um, I'm also thinking of another side quest. I can't remember the name right now, but it was basically this one resistance member asked you to find relics of the old world mm -hmm. and like a bunch of objects that humans used. And it was so interesting hearing say that, oh, this object represented this or humanity used to use this for these events. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's really interesting how they're kind of like not only some attachment to what humanity was, but kind of like a sense to kind of reclaim that as well in their current world. Mm -hmm. 
That is actually a really interesting side quest. One of the most annoying ones, by the way. Um, <laughs> speaking of fetch quests, it's like you have to search the ent- like entire desert area for these like three relics. Um, but the the um, I think the relics that you find are actually all referenced to the original Nier. Um, because the uh, ruins that that android um, is standing on is actually all from the town of Facade, which is actually a very um, important point uh, location in the original near. So it's another kind of callback um, to the original. Yeah, which it's funny too, because in the original game, a lot of these objects are still already like confusing to the characters. So it's like, you know, the original game is a kind of, post-post-apocalyptic game. This is post-post-post-apocalyptic or something. When you don't even, like, not only has society fallen apart, but it's been so long since society's fallen apart that the relics of that former society are no longer meaningful or just, like, these strange objects. Porn dictionaries that you find and the like, uh, especially in the desert area. Um, And maybe the last thing we can sort of end on uh, is talking a little bit about what you'd like to maybe see change or stay the same in a Yokotaro game. And then also maybe like what you would like other game developers to maybe learn from Nier Automata. So yeah, folks have anything in mind? And I'll just say that this week in an interview uh, that I think was only partially translated, Yokotaro said that he's making a game right now. So he, he actually, I think has two games in production maybe. And the one he was talking about, all he could say about it is that he didn't even know how to describe it, that it's so strange. And I don't know what that means. Does that mean he's finally getting away of any vestiges of like a straightforward gameplay? Oh boy. <laughs> oh man, we're going to be in one for a wild ride. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, I mean, the the one thing that I, I really love about this game and in all of his games, it, it, it seemed to ha- kind of have this, he's always pushing um, what it means to like have like a video game genre and like what it, what it, what you can do with it. Um, Like, especially in terms of, you know, uh, the players like giving up their save files. Like um, I mean that it's just really cool. Like fourth wall breaking um, stuff that um, I mean, certainly um, pushes what it, it means to be a video game. And he's, he's even said, um, you know, he wants the video game genre to be its own thing, that there's things that you can only do with a video game that like you can't get from a book that you can't get from a movie. Um, And, um, you know, just having that like action where you like have to give up your save files, uh, it just puts stake in um, the experience itself um, from for the player. Um, So I think, you know, just things like that, like pushing the boundaries, of what a game is, um, I, I, I would encourage other developers, to, you know, try and do some, something similar, um, just pushing what it means to, you know, have a game. <laughs> yeah, I very much agree on that. Um, and we were, and we already mentioned and talked about this too, but I think that was my very part of this experience as well. Like just pushing the boundaries of what a, traditional game would look like 
because I mean, for example, we talked about the prologue on how difficult it is to play it, but also so much that was put into just that prologue. And then you find out like, okay, now you can start the game, but no, really now you can start the game after you play through it. So it kept me on my toes and it kept challenging me the way I perceived this game. Cause unlike other games that maybe it's a common franchise. Um, so for example, like the Ratchet and Clank series, for example, um, I know what to expect in every one of those games. Cause even though the plot changes, it's still sim very similar mechanics and very similar way to go through. Like you just jump from planet to planet, solve the missions, go to the next one until you solve the evil um, or the villain in that game. But then here, like I was always surprised every time I would go to a level and I think even though at times it was some of the levels were frustrating and confusing and so other times I was like what the fuck is going on here right now but um I don't know I I liked that experience that it kept like challenging me in that perspective like it kept me thinking it kept me interested to keep playing just to find out what's going on or what are the mysteries of this game <laughs> Yeah, I definitely agree with both of you. And, and I think one of the things, just aspects I would stress, I suppose, is I, I want more game developers working in that AA, AAA space, so those higher budget game development studios to let themselves have some rough edges and some messy parts for the sake of experimenting, right? Yes, like I want yes, them to exactly. be okay, you know? Yeah, like your camera's going to be wonky occasionally. But if that's going to mean you're going to like mess with the perspective and make me have to sort of relearn the controls and that's going to make it so that I'm interested in a game that maybe was like losing my attention for a moment there, then please do it, you know? Or, you know, don't be afraid to have some opaque moments where the story's not just delivered to me and where I have to work for it a bit. Uh, and even to do that in a way that, you know, I, one of the things I do like about Yokotaro a lot, which I think distinguishes him from somebody about like, to be honest, Hideo Kojima, is you're not serving everything up in cutscenes. A lot of the storytelling here actually isn't in cutscenes or combines gameplay with some of the things that would be traditionally reserved for cutscenes, right? Like you get dialogue going over gameplay in a way that I find more interesting at least. Yeah, um, it's, I, I do think the dialogue while you're fighting um, is, it, it, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that personally. Um, I guess when mm. I am in the gameplay, I feel like I am not able to um, really fully listen and comprehend the dialogue. Um, so to me, that was actually kind of a, a downside. Like I actually wish, I mean, I, I actually went back and watched a playthrough of this, um, when I was done. Cause I, I, I knew I missed a lot of stuff. Um, because I, I don't know, I just can't, um, multitask like that apparently, <laughs> but for me, that was a little yeah. bit of a downside, but I, I do understand how it, um, it would be, I don't know. It, it, it is an interesting way of delivering plot but um it is hard to focus on it when you're also trying to not die <laughs> so do people want more near do you want yoko i guess the question is do you want yoko taro's next game to be unrelated or to be related and are you okay with the fact that even if it initially appears unrelated i guarantee you it will be related somehow since he's been doing this since like the early 2000s with the dragon guard series 
Um, um, I mean, I guess I would be fine with whatever he decides is best. Um, I, I, again, I kind of agree with you. I mean, the only Drakengard that wasn't related to this universe at all is Drakengard 2, and that was because he wasn't involved in that game. Um, and so I think whatever he does end up doing will probably still be in the same universe. Um, but if he thinks that like the near story is done, like, I think I can respect that. Um, I mean, I cannot see a way for this series to continue, but who knows? Uh, I mean, he's, he's crazy, smart, intelligent, so he might, he, he will find a way if he wants to. Um, so all those parallel universes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Alternate dimensions. So, yeah. um, yeah, either way. <laughs> Yeah, no, I very much agree with that too. Um, I don't know. I'll just be happy if another or more future titles of Nier will come out in the future. Um, I very much enjoyed the first Nier. Um, Automa, I loved it so much for the various reasons we talked about this podcast. I can't wait to play. Um, um, I forgot the title of the one that just released, um, but. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to play that one once again. Access to that one too, and yeah, even if it's not constant necessarily related to the near story, um, even if it's just a and it's just a brand new game, I'm I'm just excited to play it and see what secrets or the storyline or the aesthetics or what fun things I'll get out of it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end. I. Completely agree and uh, hope they keep letting him do his crazy things, experimenting with different genres and different gameplay styles and convoluted stories that require me to play through ga a game multiple times um, to realize that the playthroughs aren't the same. All right. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. It was great having both of you. Uh, Claire, I hope we get you back again soon. And Edsel, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you.